In a 1981 PBS documentary called The Christians, the narrator points out that the crucifixion is so familiar to us and so moving that it's hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. We live in this culture that's haunted by Christianity. The cross is on bumper stickers, necklaces, coffee mugs, tattoos, and wall plaques. But it seems like it's only at Good Friday that Christians spend any real time thinking about what the cross actually accomplished. And for some of us, this raises more questions than it answers. How do we see the love of God in such a violent event? How does this death that took place so long ago change things for us here and now? What does the cross really mean? So today, Francis and I are talking with Joshua Ryan Butler. He's the author of two books, The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God. And Josh is also the pastor of teaching and direction at Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. Josh is well known for his ability to take some of the more difficult ideas in scripture and explain them in ways that are beautiful, which is exactly what he does with the cross. So today we're talking about the death of Christ. And our hope is that this conversation with Josh helps you think better about the crucifixion of Jesus and the beauty of Good Friday. On behalf of Francis and myself, this is The Stone Table. Josh, thank you for sitting down with us again. Uh, I know that we sat down together over a year ago at this point to talk about your first book, Skeletons in God's Closet. But I, I realize that since then, we've probably got some new listeners and the show has changed a little bit. So could you maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are and some, some of your background? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks. Good to be back with you guys. Um, yeah. So I'm a pastor here in Tempe, Arizona. So I've been a pastor about a little over 15 years. Most of that kind of born and raised in the Northwest up in uh, Oregon uh, was a pastor in Portland for about 15 years and uh, just loved it. Uh, recently this last year, we made a transition out to the Southwest. And so we're now in kind of the Phoenix area, uh, Arizona state university, Tempe college town and loving that. So pastor here and one of my kind of passions or things I love is trying to help people who wrestle with some of the tough topics of the faith. Um, so that's really part of my own story. Uh, I came to faith in college immediately got bombarded by a barrage of questions from friends and all like, how can you believe in a God who da, 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 you know, <laughs> and now, you know, kind of years later, I just love trying to help folks who wrestle with questions like those, mostly by sharing some of the paradigm shifts that have been helpful for me. I think uh, finding that often, uh, you know, often I think at the root of our questions is we can often have a caricature of what uh, Christianity has historically taught or what's really going on in the Bible. And so trying to help people with some of those paradigm shifts where we see the goodness of God through and through, not, not in spite of, but even in the midst of some of the hardest topics that we can really encounter the goodness of God there afresh. So that's kind of the end game of, I think one of the things I most love doing is uh, trying to reclaim a greater confidence in the good character of God. That's that's one of the things that I really love about your writing and your teaching. It, it's funny when I try to explain what you do to people. The the only word I can use is apologetics, but it doesn't feel like apologetics <laughs> because because in reality you're, I mean you're just explaining the sort of the essential truths of Christianity in a way that takes the difficult facts and and makes them beautiful mm. rather than being abrasive. Mm. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because you've kind of 
carved out this approach with with your first book where you tackle issues like hell and the the book of Joshua and and then with your second book things like the atonement and so you you mentioned that's kind of part of your story is wrestling through those difficult issues so who who helped you what were some of the ways that you encountered these paradigm shifts yeah around these tough topics well thanks yeah and you know really quick what you mentioned there too with uh, you know apologetics you know I, I like the word i'm fine with it it's a historic word but it is interesting it rooted in the word often as this idea of a defense you know so you've got these objections to or these things with problems people might have with christian faith and it's trying to offer an apologia or a defense and uh one of the things that i i, I like to think of a little differently is seeing it a bit more as an offense than a defense <laughs> you know sometimes the posture and apologize can feel a bit like, well, let's just try and show that at minimum, these things aren't that bad, you know? Yeah. yeah, I kind of want to go a little more on the offense, but actually I think even these tough topics are actually good and and actually reveal something about the goodness of God and, and his good, true and beautiful purposes for our world. Yeah. And so in my own life, a lot of it, yeah, to be honest, I, man, it depends on which topic we're talking about. You know, I think there's different influences in different topics, but I, I love to try and read broadly, particularly across the Christian tradition. So kind of reading uh, historical early church fathers, uh, medieval, you know, reading through kind of folks from through the ages and how they've sought to understand it, uh, as well as reading and listening to folks globally, you know, spending time with international church uh, have had kind of the blessing of working with brothers and sisters in Christ kind of around the world at uh, different, different places and just getting kind of shaped and formed by uh, sometimes the ways that pulling out of my own little bubble and echo chamber here in urban America and, and into a maybe more global perspective, global and historical perspective has been probably the most helpful. So echoing back to what Travis said, when I read your book, I I loved how you choose to be creative in your writing. A lot of mm-hmm. times with theology, it's very heady. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to digest it. But I was just curious, what kind of inspires you to choose to write truth in a beautiful way? That's not, I don't know if I'd say traditional, but like, that's more easy to read and easy to visualize, especially like your whole painting analogy in your book with Christ. Where does that kind of stem from? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, I, honestly, I think it's actually uh, writing worship music. So I used to be a songwriter. You know, I started playing guitar in college or in high school, started singing in college and uh, started writing music. Uh, not, not necessarily Christian music or whatever, but just writing music. And then later uh, I got asked by a pastor at our church. This is a few years after college. I got asked if I consider writing worship music. And I was like, no way. You know, it just sounded <laughs> too hard or I don't know, different or a different feel. I, I just didn't even know. I didn't have a category for it. So I, so I said, no, thank you. Um, but then he pushed. And so I tried. And then I just fell in love with it. And so I spent probably over a decade really writing a ton of music that we'd sing in, in the life of the church. And one of the things that I found interesting is I, I wasn't necessarily doing a ton of creative writing at the time beyond music you know uh, but i think that was actually the seedbed or kind of the foundation for writing later because the three things that i was striving to do with worship music i found were the same things that i'm trying to do in writing with the books you know and so there's three things the first was um theological depth going you know, it just feels like there's a lot of fluff out there you, know, you can have a lot of songs that they're catchy but is there really you know some of the historic worship music of the church is just a a grit and a depth that kind of takes you into the depths of who God is and all. And so whether or not I always hit the mark, that's what I was striving for is, and this is a chance to really dive into the depths of who God is. A second thing I was striving for was what I call poetic imagination, where I think 
poetry, creativity, imagination, it has the ability to help you see something ancient as if you're seeing it again for the first time. You know, something that you're familiar with, maybe overly familiar with. Uh, but that metaphor, that image, that whatever it is can help it pop as if you seen it again for the first time. So in music, I was always trying to find what's, what's a creative metaphor, image, or hook. You can say a lot more with an image than you and you can't, you know, it can take a lot of words to say the same thing that one image can do really quickly. And with music lyrics, you, you often, there, there's a compact nature to it. You've got to cram a lot, uh, ideally into a small space. And so I was working with that. And then the third thing I was shooting for was congregational accessibility. Like, can the congregation sing to this? Like, it might have a lot of great stuff in it, but if people can't sing along or connect to it or, you know, connect their experience to it, then then it's kind of missing the, the boat there. So what I found then when I sat down to try writing was whether or not I always hit it, but those three are kind of the grid that I'm striving for often in the books as well is going to, I want this to have theological depth, like not just fluff, but if I'm going to take the time to write this and people are going to take the time to read it, I actually want it to hopefully help us go deeper into exploring the greatness of who God is. And then the second, like poetic imagination going, um, I could write loads of words and pages and pages and chapters or whatever that are just me abstractly trying to explain this, but can I find like the fresh image or the fresh, the, the thing that will help it pop and ideally love and serve the reader by doing, you know, the image can do that, I think in a more compact, quick time than a lengthy academic treatise, so, you know, so trying to serve the reader through brevity and imagination. And then third, going, can, can people sing along to it? Does it actually connect with, um, where folks are at. I, I love reading the big nerdy academic tomes, but I know most folks don't and that's fine. They shouldn't have to, you know, so can this be an act of loving and serving the church by hopefully making it accessible and again, whether or not I always hit it, I think that that's kind of the goal. And I, and I think some of the backdrop to where that came from. Yeah, I would say you hit it. I mean, I, I'm not as smart as these guys. That's not true. <laughs> She's smarter than both of us. <laughs> But I really appreciate creativity. I I nerd out over like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all that stuff. So when you bring in analogies, it helps me relate to these deep doctrines in a way that that I can grasp onto and visualize. And it changes the way that I live and I relate to the church and to the world and, and to God. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you, you really do in so many ways, take the, the big academic tomes and sort of digest them down in a way that makes sense. So mm. when I, I came into the office today and was talking to Corey, because I've been working through your book all week to get ready for this, I said, man, he talks about inseparable operations and the one will and the Godhead <laughs> and divine impassibility. He talks about all of it and he never uses the technical words, but it's all sort of digested down and you know, in one chapter, you're quoting Peter Lightheart and Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Aquinas. And so you're condensing all this stuff that is, it's, it's really helpful. And thanks. So the way that I, I first found your writing was through Derek Rishmaui. Yes. Love that guy. He, uh, he recommended your book, Skeletons in God's Closet. And you know, as we're kind of having this conversation in particular about the cross, I was thumbing through Christianity Today and, and Derek wrote this article about Good Friday. And there's this great quote in there that I think can kind of set up 
our, our conversation as we go forward. He's reflecting on Good Friday services and he says, never have I been more moved or more likely to squirm in my seat in a church than on Good Friday. Mm. And then he goes on and he says, for many of us, it's a trial to read the Good Friday texts and still see God as being good. Mm. And I know that that's one of the, the concerns you're trying to address in your book is how do we see the goodness of God at the cross rather than than the brutality or the violence of the cross, even though I guess that's important. And, and you know, over the last five to 10 years, a lot of my friends have wrestled with that question of mm. what does it look like to say God is good and that this this violent action of crucifixion is the biggest and strongest picture of it. Mm. So for you as a pastor for you know the last 15 years, why do, what are some of the reasons why people struggle with the cross? Mm. What are some of the concerns you are eager to address? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons, you know, I, I'd say if I were to sum up, you know, I think the concern many have today, something like, um, uh, there's what's been called kind of the, is this divine child abuse, you know, kind of the father beating the snot out of his son kind of thing. And, um, some of the concerns there. And so a, I think our generation or kind of time in history and kind of Western culture, like, I think we're more, sensitive to uh, violence than maybe any other time in history when maybe it was just part of a part of some of the difficult realities of life and be um, maybe more, uh, well, you know, I, I think that they were more sensitive to it and B, I think that there is a popular representation of what's happening on the cross and kind of that many people may have grown up with. It's really kind of a recent one. Um, that pits kind of the father against the son at the cross in a way that's uh, not really historically accurate to the teaching of the church or really helpful, you know? So, um, so that's kind of what I wanted to untangle. I think uh, you have, I think one side that wants to go, do we need to get almost get rid of or minimize themes like sacrifice and wrath at the cross so that we don't have to do what the violence piece and you have other side who maybe wants to retain them appropriate to retain them, but does so in a way that ends up kind of dividing the Trinity against itself. Like the father and the son are sort of pitted against each other in a way that's not accurate to hmm. the Trinity or the new Testament. Yeah. yeah. One of the analogies that I kind of encountered when I was a high school student, and I'd be interested to get your take both on maybe the pros and the cons of it is this illustration of a train and a bridge mm-hmm. where the the father is like a, a bridge operator and he, he takes his son to work with him one day and there's a train full of people heading for this bridge and, and the son through a series of accidents ends up caught in the gears and the father has to choose to sort of lower the bridge and sacrifice his son to save the people on the train. And uh, there was actually a movie, like a short film that circulated when I was a high school student called Most. And it was basically that. And I remember watching it when I was in high school and crying and thinking it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Mm. Um, and I think there's maybe some good things to that image, but, but I wonder how you feel about a, a picture like that. What does that get right? What does that maybe get wrong in something like the cross? Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. I saw that uh, film years ago. And so I think the, the helpful part, the, the part that I think resonates with folks properly is that there's, um, 
there is, it's for the sake of saving humanity that atonement happens and that there's something it costs the father. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an act of love on the father's part on behalf of the salvation of humanity. It's, um, uh, you know, I think you read the new Testament and it's the cross is always depicted as an act of the father's love for the world. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his son and ultimately in John that's connected and tied to the cross and atonement, you know, uh, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's seen as an act of the father's God and God's salvation for the world. Uh, the part though, one of the pieces that I think is um, maybe unhelpful or misleading about the train image uh, is the fact that it presents Jesus or the son as kind of this hapless victim, right? Like a five-year-old. And, and that's something that I think the divine child abuse character, that's one part of it that's problematic as well is that Jesus is depicted as kind of a hapless victim, you know, and Jesus is not a kindergartner. <laughs> like, like as we see the cross, Jesus is a fully grown man going of his own will and accord to the cross for the salvation of the world. And so Man, I think one of the ways I put in the book, like Jesus is a jaguar out to devour death. Like Jesus, the cross doesn't just happen to Jesus. Jesus is happening to the cross. Like Jesus is taking on the sin, death, and destruction of the world, um, taking on our sin, our suffering, our shame. Uh, he's absorbing it within himself. He is taking it upon himself in order to reconcile humanity. And so one of the issues that I think the, so one issue with the train analogy and in the bigger picture for many people with the cross, you know, is, is that today is that it depicts Jesus as kind of passive, you know, and the reality is that what Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus is an active agent at the cross. It's the climax of his mission and why he came. So that's a piece. And then likewise with the father, I mean, it does think, I do think it shows that like, man, this, this is an act of love on the father's behalf of the salvation of humanity, but the train analogy kind of depicts the father as um, caught by circumstance, you know, that like, Oh man, I'm caught by surprise or off guard. I, I didn't want this to happen, but now, Oh shoot, I've got to choose Jesus or this field, you know? And, uh, and Likewise, we think we see in the New Testament, this is actually the triune plan for salvation of humanity and the reconciliation of creation before the foundation of the world. So the cross is an act of God's sovereign saving initiative as Father, Son, and Spirit, not as something he's kind of responding to in knee-jerk, you know, kind of got caught off guard and, all right, well, I guess I got to do this or I'm hosed, you know, so... Um, so something that I've always struggled with when thinking about the cross is that in scripture, it talks about how the father turns his back on Christ, which kind of brings up this weird question about breaking fellowship within the Trinity. And it's confusing. <laughs> so how, what do you think is going on there? How do you explain that? Great. Okay. Yeah. So a few thoughts, like the, some of the language about the father turning his back on the son, that kind of language. Um, I think first thing that's helpful to recognize is uh, that that is biblical language, the idea of the, the God turning his face away or the Father turning his face away. Um, in the Old Testament, it shows up a lot in the Psalms as kind of a metaphor for death, right? So the blessing in the Old Testament, may God make his face to shine upon you. Um, that's connected in Hebrew imagery in the Old Testament with life, with abundance, with flourishing, with blessing. And so there's a sense of, God making his face shine upon you and living before the face of God is speaks to 
the abundance of life that comes in, in God's presence. Um, and then similarly, God turning his face away is a phrase that even the righteous, you know, so it's not just like, oh, I was bad and God turned his face away. You know, even the righteous call like, God, where, why do you hide your face from me? You know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's metaphorical language in some way that speaks to the experienced absence of the sense of God's presence. You know, that, that it speaks to affliction, to destruction, to um, ultimately death, that uh, we were made to, live in the presence of God with life and death involves kind of going back to the ground from which we came. And so that language, I think it's appropriate if we understand, you know, that properly that it's, um, I don't think it speaks to the sense that God is ticked off or, you know, his eternal son, that there's a rupture in the relationship between the eternal father and son. So if we kind of zoom out and go, what's, what's, what's the bigger picture of what's happening here? I think it's important to look at this through the lens of Christ's humanity, that Christ is taking on our humanity redemptively for the salvation of the world. So one of the ways I like to put it in the book is that from one angle at the cross, Jesus is taking our distance from the presence of God upon himself in his humanity. And at the very same time, Jesus is bearing the presence of God within himself through his divinity into our distance, right? So there is a sense historically where the church has seen the tension of the cross has not been between the eternal father and the eternal son, right? But rather between Christ's two natures, his divinity and his humanity. And so from one angle, the cross is triune saving action. Like it is the father at work through the son and in the spirit for the salvation of the world. Um, and yet from another angle, Christ as our king, as our you know, in his representative humanity, that he is bearing the weight of our affliction, of our exile, and our death upon himself in his vicarious humanity, in order to ultimately, you know, to be fully united with us in our condition, in order to raise us with him from the grave. So as Jesus goes into the grave. This is the place where he is most fully united with us as his people. Like he takes upon himself. And I believe the father is seen here as sovereignly at work, like knitting the flesh and bone of his son, so to speak, knitting his humanity together with us as his people in the fullness of our condition in order to raise us um, with him. And the imagery or kind of language, come back to that imagery or language of the father you know, turning his face away or God turning his face away, uh, it speaks ultimately the fact that Jesus suffers and dies, you know, that, 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 that itself, it's kind of a metaphor for, I think, for the reality of, um, it was not a pleasant experience. (laughs) Yeah. That that he took the weight of our condition upon himself. when we talk about the cross it inspires us to think about our relationship with the lord and how christ's death allows us forgiveness and redemption from our sin and we're united with the father how do you think that the cross also changes our relationship within the church and our brothers and unites us with our brothers and sisters in christ 
Man, I think one of the big ways is that it calls us to uh, love one another sacrificially, uh, to lay down our lives for each other. And a lot of the language in the New Testament is that now that we you know, lay down our lives for one another and suffer at times the, the community you know, uh, in ways that are non-retaliatory and, and seek to bless those who curse us and, and care for those who afflict or wound us. Uh, so I think of, you know, um, this, if, if I kind of come at it from a different angle, yeah, I think one of the objections you hear people say sometimes is, well, why can't God just forgive? You know, like why, why did Christ need to suffer? Why can't God just sort of, if he wants to forgive and just let it go and move on. Um, but I think that misunderstands what the nature of forgiveness that, um, I do believe that what is happening at the cross is God is just forgiving. He is justly forgiving. Uh, so to use an example, I heard, uh, I think Tim Keller used an example like this once, but if your neighbor comes home one night and like is just wasted drunk and drives through your bushes and smashes his car into the front living room of your house, you know, and you wake up kind of disheveled and come outside and like, Oh my gosh, what, what did you do? And you find he's already stumbled home and crashed out of sleep on his couch, you know? Well, the next day, if you go over to him and you say, yeah, I forgive you. Uh, that doesn't mean that the damage to your home suddenly just disappears, right? The, the construction comes back together and the trees grow back up in the lawn and whatever else, you know, saying you forgive them doesn't make the damage go away. What forgiveness means is that you bear the, weight of the damage, you bear the cost to repair it yourself. You're no longer going to hold them liable to repair it. You're going to take on that damage yourself. And I think on a bigger social scale, I think of the big uh, housing crisis back in 2008 in the U.S. where the banks were reckless with loans and uh, led to just crashing the economy, kind of tanked the international economy even. And then there was this whole big debate over should the government forgive the banks the debt they incurred? Um, I think it was Bank of America owed like an astronomical amount of money, right? And the question is, well, should we forgive the bank? And ultimately they did, and that was really controversial, you know, but the, the banks were forgiven the amount. But forgiving the banks didn't mean that the cost to the economy and the world went away. It meant that we were bearing the cost ourselves, society, and not requiring the banks to repay it. And so whether you're talking about that personal example with your home or this social big example with the banks and, and the economy and all, what it speaks to that I believe is happening at the cross is God forgiving doesn't make the cost just magically disappear and go away. What's happening at the cross is that God is bearing the cost himself in Christ rather than requiring it of us. And so that's where I, you know, to come back to I believe God is just forgiving at the cross. He was justly forgiving. And similarly, when we are wounded by brothers and sisters in the church or by people, you know, in the larger society, um, that we are called to forgive, but forgiveness, you know, doesn't mean it's, it's not kind of this Pollyanna, like, Oh, it's okay. I forgive you. And everything just go, it doesn't actually hurt anymore. You know, like forgiving someone often means that you're bearing the weight of the injury they've done to you yourself and not requiring them to try and rectify it or make amends or whatever else. And I think in my experience, the only resource that can really help us do that well is when we've experienced it ourselves, when we encounter what Christ has done for us, the cost that God was willing to bear on our behalf rather than to make us pay it back. It's one who's been forgiven much loves much. You know, it's when we experience how much we've been forgiven that I think we're empowered more to forgive 
others and not by pretending that justice isn't important or doesn't exist, but by bearing the weight of injustice upon ourselves on behalf of the other. So can I ask you just a question that I've heard brought up before when we're looking at the cross and the idea that Jesus is bearing our judgment for us, this idea of Jesus being our substitute. One of the, one of the objections that people will say is that they call that sort of a legal fiction. Like if, Mm. if it were to happen in our justice system that somebody commits a crime and sort of in this hunger games esque fashion, another person raises their hand and goes, I volunteer as tribute. You can send, you can send me to jail for them or, or execute me for them. Most people would say that's not justice. So, so how, how does that work with the cross that Jesus is without sin? He's bearing the punishment for our sin. And somehow that, that works. Totally. That's a great question. Uh, yeah. Kind of the question, like is substitution fair? Like uh, if I went out for breakfast as I like to do, and I were to order bacon and they brought me like a veggie turkey bacon or, you know, like no, <laughs> no offense to any vegans out there, but I would, that's not fair. That's, no not, way. Order, that's not what I want. You yeah. can't just replace this with that and have it be the same thing. Right. And similarly, you can feel like that with the cross. And I was like, Oh, well, I ordered this, you know, you got, uh, there's this person who's guilty and we're just going to swap in this person who's innocent and that somehow magically, like no judge in my right mind would ever punish an innocent person for seeking guilty. Maybe we're talking about like, Hey, I'll pay his parking ticket or something. But if there was a murderer or a rapist and you're like, Oh, we're just going to punish this innocent guy instead. That doesn't rectify anything that was done wrong. It doesn't make the streets safer. That doesn't, whatever the, the reasons would be. But I think historically, I think what's happening in the New Testament and the way the church historically understood this is we're often thinking about substitution there very individualistically, just this individual for this individual. And historically, the context has been much more of a corporate sense, like corporate substitution. And when we hear the word corporate today, we didn't think of Walmart or Starbucks or McDonald's, you know, big international corporations. But the historical idea that it comes from the word corporal, like of the body. And the sense is that humanity or a nation or a family is like a social body. There's a corporate identity, collective identity together as people. And as Jesus um, becomes, you know, steps into our, our history and our story, one of the images I use in the book is that Jesus is a Wall Street CEO. Right? Like God has installed Jesus as the new CEO of Humanity Inc. And so if you go back to that uh, housing crisis and the banks and all that, you know, let's say that after the housing crisis, Bank of America, again, they owe however many billions of dollars or whatever. And let's say Bank of America were to go, well, that was under the old CEO. We fired him, we put a new CEO in charge, and so now the debt should go away. Like, we don't know anything anymore. Like, everyone would say, no, that's ridiculous. You have a corporate debt. Even if you got rid of the individual at the top of the thing, there's a corporate debt that the new CEO is still responsible for the organization that bears that debt as a whole. And so similarly, I think in, in the big picture here, what's, what's happening is that God is installing Jesus as the king of Israel, as the new head of humanity, the new Adam. Right? And as such, like he is bearing our corporate debt, like the weight of corporate humanity of our sin and all for all of us. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have individual implications. Like once you have that in place, I mean, dude, you can truly say Jesus died for me. You know, I was guilty he is my righteous king, bore the weight of my sin. But it's not so much like 
just swapping out one for one, this guilty person, this innocent person. It's Jesus as the king of Israel and the new head of the human race, bearing the corporate weight and debt of humanity as a whole. That's just thrown a sledgehammer into the flourishing of God's world. And, and now it's, um, that has implications for us as individuals that he has substituted himself for us on our behalf. And now we can rejoice that he's set us free. So, this episode is going to be coming out within a day or so of Good Friday, which is the time that Christians around the world turn their attention in a special way to the cross. And it's it's one of those images that in the church you see constantly, and yet Good Friday gives us this opportunity to reflect on it anew. And so I guess I'm just wondering, as we kind of wrap up our time together, when when the people listening to this turn their attention to the cross on Good Friday, what do you think that they should see as they look at the cross? Man, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the, one theme that's really struck me right now, you, you mentioned Derek Urshmaui earlier, and I love that guy. One of the things I've heard him say before is, Jesus is getting a lot of work done at the cross. Right? There are so many different angles on what, what's happening that I think part of the beauty and power of the cross is that we can explore and reflect and meditate upon the majesty and the magnitude of what Christ is accomplishing from so many different angles. So, so I think one of my encouragements to folks would be don't stop exploring. There's so much happening here that's worth continually returning to. But one theme that's striking me from right, you know, right now, I think we often think of the cross as Jesus's defeat and the resurrection as Jesus's victory uh, but believe the New Testament actually depicts the cross as Jesus's victory, which is counterintuitive to us, right? Like, how is the cross a victory? Like, that's where you got beat. That's where you got killed, you know? Um, but I think it depends on what we think the goal, God's goal is or what Jesus' goal is, right? Like, if the goal is to stay alive, then, yeah, the cross is a defeat, right? But if the goal is to atone for sin, to reconcile humanity, to redeem creation, then the cross is ultimately where the, that battle is won, like where that is accomplished. And the resurrection becomes not the reversal of the cross so much as the vindication of the cross, like God justifying and vindicating his crucified one. Um, and so I think you see this, especially in John's gospel, but in the New Testament where the cross is actually depicted as the throne from which Christ rules, that uh, the cross is depicted as an exaltation where the movement, Jesus is moving towards crossing. When he says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And it's ultimately on the cross. That is where he is lifted up like the snake in the wilderness that he magnetically draws people when he's got the, they place the crown of thorns on his head and write King of the Jews over the inscription of the cross. And, the royal robe imagery, like the cross is depicted in the gospels as an enthronement scene because it is the climax of Christ's mission where he atones for sin, reconciles humanity and redeems creation from the enemy. I think sometimes people say like, Oh, it's either substitution or it's, you know, Christus Victor, uh, this idea that the cross is like Christ's victory over the powers and, and I want to say, no, it's Christus Victor through penal substitute. It's Christ bearing the punishment is how he disarms the powers and accomplishes his victory over sin, death, and the devil. They're intrinsically related. And so all that to say, my encouragement to folks as we approach Good Friday this year might be to look at the cross as the victory of Jesus, as the place where the king on our behalf is exalted and enthroned as 
the one who dies for his world and suffering love. And because of that, we're able to be raised with him in newness of life forever. Josh, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with us. And thank you so much for helping us see just some of the, the multifaceted beauty of the cross. Uh, my hope is that you and your family have a, a great Holy Week, a, a good, good Friday and a triumphant Easter Sunday. So thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource from the College of Career Ministry of Baylife Church. Our goal is to equip our community to follow Christ faithfully and think carefully about the harder issues in the Christian faith. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. For College of Career Ministry, I'm Corey, and this is The Stone Table. What's that? Um, Frasier. <laughs> so I feel like you're so awesome. I'm good? He said that's how he like everyone calls in for advice because um, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist. What? And so they tell him. I, I mean, if I have, I don't remember it. Oh Stop. my I'm, god! No, I'm a, I'm a, a radio host. You're totally Frasier. I'm Frasier. Well, I don't know. I'm, Maybe. I, so I don't know. he he's no, no, no. yeah he's a really. <laughs> He's a bald ladies man. He looks old. How much have you watched so far? I mean, you're right, but I don't understand it because he looks like an old man. And he's he's famous because he's a radio host, so everyone listens to his radio show. And his brother is also a psychiatrist, and he and his brother hates that he does a radio show because he thinks that it like it's like pop culture, and he's like, you are ruining the field. Gotcha. So really, I think he's jealous. But anyways, he wears headphones and he has a microphone, and they call in, and he said, and whenever they his little direct producer lady says, this is Charlotte from Boston. <laughs> He's like, hello, Charlotte. I'm listening. <laughs> that's what I feel Is like. Frasier the one that has Kramer in it? No, that's Seinfeld. that's Seinfeld. Like I said, all I watch is Friends. That's a good show, though. It's a great program. Yeah. <laughs>